Deadly Grounds Coffee knows how important your coffee is to you. Every batch is roasted to perfection with a unique special method that brings out the richest, deepest, smoothest flavor you'll ever find. We're coffee freaks too, and deadly serious about our brew. Just one sip and you'll know why we say, once you go deadly, you don't go back. It's truly coffee to die for. So when you're ready to get a little deadly, get online and order yours at getdeadly.com. It's coffee so good, it's scary. Warning! Warning! Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. What kind of a sick school is this? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Stand up to my little friend. I love to celebrate plum in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Hey! Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A Daniel Man! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose when you have a phone. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to another fun episode of Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. While many horror movies tend to reuse common tropes over and over again, there are those rare ones that manage to not only come up with an original idea, but also take those tropes and turn them on their ears. It Follows, a horror movie from 2014, manages to do all that as well as present a multi-layered film that delivers chills and horror with maximum effect. Frequent co-host Jack Gorey and I will break it down and tell you what we thought of this modern horror picture. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Food fight! Hey, you in my class? 
I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shop class. Woo -woo! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shop class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good, sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, so. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're gonna have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play and have fun now. Okay, folks, joining me once again today is Jack Gorey. Jack, how's it going today? Going great. Excellent, excellent. So today we are going to discuss a modern horror movie that has been described as not only influenced by John Carpenter's films, but also a kind of a mix between The Ring and Nightmare on Elm Street. The movie in question is called It Follows from 2014. I used to daydream about being old enough to go on dates. I had this image of myself. Holding hands with a really cute guy. Driving along some pretty road. It's never about going anywhere, really. It's having some sort of freedom, I guess. <laughs> okay. You awake? What are you doing? You're not gonna believe me. And I need you to remember what I'm saying. This thing, it's gonna follow you. Somebody gave it to me, and I passed it to you. Wherever you are, it's somewhere walking straight for you. All you can do is pass it along to someone else. I'm scared. I need to find him. Who did he really do to you? Apparently, he used a fake name to rent a house in the city. This isn't real. I swear to you, this is just some game. If it kills her, it gets me and goes straight down the line whoever started it. What exactly is supposed to be following you? I don't know. Something happened. It's not what she thinks, okay? You don't believe me. Mom? No, it's me. Everything's okay. It could look like someone you know, or it could be a stranger in a crowd. Whatever helps it get close to you. Oakland University student Jamie J. Height goes on a date with her new boyfriend, Hugh. That night, Hugh points out a young girl in the back of the theater. When Jamie says she cannot see the girl, Hugh becomes unnerved and asks that they leave. On another date, Hugh and Jamie have sex in his car, but afterwards, he incapacitates Jamie with chloroform, and she wakes up tied to a wheelchair in the Packard plant, where Hugh explains that she will be pursued by an entity that only they can see, and which can take the appearance of any person. If it catches Jamie, it will kill her and pursue the previous person to have passed it on, Hugh. After they see a naked woman walking toward them, Hugh drives Jamie home and flees. The next day, the police cannot find the naked woman or Hugh, who was living under a false identity. 
At school, Jamie sees an old woman in a hospital gown walking towards her, invisible to others. Jamie's sister Kelly and her friends, Paul Boldan and Yara Davis, agree to help and spend the night in Jamie and Kelly's house. That night, someone smashes the kitchen window. Paul investigates but sees no one. Inside the house, Jamie sees a disheveled, urinating, half-naked woman walking toward her and runs upstairs to the others who cannot see the entity. When a tall man enters the bedroom, Jamie flees the house. Her friends catch up to her at a nearby playground with the help of their neighbor, Greg Hannigan. The group discovers Hugh's real name, Jeff Redmond, and traces him to his address. Jeff's mother answers the door and Jamie realizes that the naked woman she had seen coming for her in the packet plant was in the form of Mrs. Redmond. Jeff explains that the entity began pursuing him after a one-night stand and that Jamie can pass it on by having sex with someone else. Greg drives Jamie, Kelly, Yara, and Paul to his family's lake house and teaches Jamie to shoot a revolver. The entity arrives in the form of Yara and attacks Jamie on the lakefront. Jamie's friends ward it off by breaking a chair over its body and Jamie shoots it in the head, but it recovers unharmed and attacks Jamie again, this time taking the form of a boy who lives next door to Jamie. She flees in Greg's car, crashing into a cornfield, and wakes up in a hospital with a broken arm. Greg has sex with Jamie in the hospital, as he does not believe the entity exists. Days later, Jamie sees the entity in the form of Greg walking toward Greg's own house, smashes a window at Greg's house, and enters. Jamie tries to warn the real Greg by telephone, but he does not answer. She runs into the house and finds the entity in the form of Greg's half-naked mother knocking on his door before it jumps on Greg. Jamie sees the entity having sex with a dead Greg and then flees by car and spends the night outdoors. On a beach, Jamie sees three young men on a boat. She then undresses and walks into the water. Back home, Paul, eager to take the risk, offers Jamie the opportunity to pass it on to him, but she refuses. The group plans to kill the entity by luring it into a swimming pool and dropping electrical devices into the water. Jamie, waiting in the pool, spots the entity and realizes it has taken the appearance of her deceased father. Instead of entering the pool, it throws the devices at her. Firing at an invisible target, Paul accidentally wounds Yara, but shoots the entity in the head, and once covered by a sheet, it is shot once more, causing it to fall into the pool. As it pulls Jamie underwater, Paul shoots it again and Jamie escapes. She approaches the pool and sees it filling with blood. Jamie and Paul have sex. That night, Paul drives through town, passing prostitutes. Later, Jamie and Paul walk down the street holding hands as a figure walks behind them. So, uh, first impressions on this movie, Jack? Oh, I loved it the the first time I watched it. I watched it when it had first come out. And uh, it almost takes multiple watches because I always pick up on different things or have different views on kind of what's going on in the movie. So, I thought it was, I think it's an awesome movie and I've probably seen it maybe 10 times <laughs> since it came out. Oh, wow. I think I just thought it was, I thought it was just one of the better horror films that came out in the, you know, in the past decade. I thought it just, it had such a cool atmosphere to it. The whole environment and the tone is, it just sets up for a great movie. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I thought you hadn't seen it. Um, so that's awesome that you saw that. This was my first viewing. I watched it last night, and then I watched it with the director's commentary this morning. Actually, it wasn't a director's commentary. It was someone who was knowledgeable in horror movies. And um, yeah, it's it's very multi-layered. A lot of themes in this film. It's it's really there's so much to it that I didn't expect that going in. And I have to say, I didn't quite get that the first time. I was a little confused by a few things. And then after doing a little research I and watching it again, I kind of got a better grip on the film. Oh, yeah, you miss a few things. And even doing further research or even just reading, it's like there's certain aspects you go, why did they put that in here? Why did she say that? And why did she say this? And you kind of think back and it's like, oh, you start to realize how much thought was really put into each scene and the whole set design 
and there are there really are a lot of levels to the movie. Right, right. I'm, I kind of had an issue with with the ending, and we'll get into that a little bit later on. But overall, I I really enjoyed. It. I thought it was terrifying. I was, you know, I had the blanket and I was hiding under the blanket through half the film because it was really scary. Right. It definitely it, the movie creates such this level of uneasiness throughout it. Went yeah. through a lot of different ways too. So yeah, you watch it like that's just what the scary aspect of it is too. Is you know the entity has so many different. It could disguise itself, and it does disguise itself as people that they know, people that they knew. Um, so that's really a creepy aspect to it, too. Right, right. And that was one thing I didn't quite get. I wasn't getting that it was looking like like so, when it was obvious that it looked like one of the characters that we knew. I got it, but I didn't realize until you know afterwards that some of the or most of what it had become or what it transformed into were people that they knew. So, like you said, that it takes multiple viewings to really fully. Uh, grasp this film right yeah i mean and sometimes it's like you said it's it's obvious an old lady in a nightgown doesn't fit in at a high school right so so right <laughs> off the bat i feel like off the bat they make it extremely obvious um right especially when they have like the guy who's like looks like he's about seven feet tall oh that was scary comes down comes down the hallway and just like has to duck to get in through the doorway I remember that one always stood out to me. Yeah, yeah, and he's like standing right behind them, and and it's not like your typical monster. It it just moves at this one slow pace, so it didn't like wade through the kids and kill them to get to her. It just was walking right behind them, and that made it even creepier. Yeah, I kind of had those, you know, Michael Myers Halloween vibes to it, which I think there's a lot of connections to Halloween actually in this movie. The more I thought about it, oh, absolutely. Uh, her name's Jamie, and I was like, huh, Jamie Lee Curtis, and then. One thing, actually, I just read this morning, which I didn't know. As I said, I keep learning things about this. Uh, the girl at the beginning of the movie, in the first scene, her name's Annie. And the first person to die in Halloween is named Annie. That's right. That's right. I didn't even get that. And they have, you know, this has no name. They call it the entity. Michael Myers was called the shape. And he just moved slowly towards who he was trying to kill. So it had a lot of those same kind of feel to it. Right. And and Michael Myers, um, I think Dr. Loomis refers to him as the embodiment of evil. And this thing was like basically the personification of death, where it just no matter what you did, it was going to eventually get you. Right. Yeah, that was actually that was probably my second take on the movie. When I first watched it, I was like, oh, this is about uh, STDs and you, you shouldn't have sex and pass it on. And the guy at the beginning of the movie, you know, he he has sex without with her without obviously he doesn't tell her, by the way. Right. I kind of have this uh, <laughs> thing that's going to kill me. But if I have sex with you, it's it's your problem. Right. <laughs> also. So he doesn't tell her that. So I was like, oh, this is kind of a STDs type of movie. But then I'm like, oh, also, it's just like death. Uh, the kind of inevitable, you know, slowly just kind of comes after him. So, yeah, some dark themes that go with the movie. Oh, very much so. Very much so. So the director of this film is a guy named David Robert Mitchell, and he's a relatively new director. He's only had a handful of films. The Myth of the American Sleepover is one of them, and Under the Silver Lake. And I haven't seen those yet, but I've heard good things about them. And based on this movie, it sounds like we really need to watch this guy in the future. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this movie was one of those early ones that A24 has continuously put out amazing movies. And I remember just from the start, I was like, oh, i got to keep an eye on this guy too, and A24, because it, it was like the early stages where these movies, these great horror films started to come out. Like, after. Do you happen to recall what some of A24's other films are? It doesn't ring a bell off the top of my head. Oh, A24? Um, off the top of my head, I want to feel like they might have started with Babadook, uh, The Lighthouse that just came out this year, which I loved, was a huge one. Uh, Hereditary was a oh, newer yeah. one. Yeah. So they're, yeah, they just, and they're doing a lot more of indie 
kind of indie movies that are really getting a lot of good cred. So now their list is probably ridiculous for how many movies they've done, but they're known for not spending, you know, multi-millions, maybe like at the most part, like four million on their movies. Right. It's, it's unbelievable the quality of the movies that they've been putting out. Yeah, yeah, okay. I got to start looking at them because I, I did see uh, The Babadook and I did see Hereditary. I saw Hereditary in the theater. That was really good. Oh, yeah. So. It was awesome. I love that one too. But yeah, A24 just, it almost has this retro feel to it. And it's almost like they want to rekindle, you know, movies of the past, but just made for today. Right, right, exactly. Now, the score was composed by a guy named Rich Vreeland, who is better known as Disaster Piece. And um, what I liked about this score is that it had shades of John Carpenter's Halloween, but it wasn't a copy. It had definitely had its own unique flavor and really added to the uh, to the ambiance of the film. Right. Yeah, that's good word for it is ambiance. Um, I feel like the whole set and the whole mood of everything is it's almost made to make you feel uneasy because there's no there's no time frame for this movie. I think that's there's a lot of subtle ways that. You feel uneasy and you're not really sure why. It's almost like subconsciously, you know, one minute they're swimming in a pool. The next scene, they're walking down the street with winter clothes on. Right, right. And some of them have winter clothes while they're at the beach. And there's one swimming in the ocean and the other one's wearing a hoodie. And even the setting of the house. I remember the setting of the house. They're watching like black and white movies. Yeah, yeah. The mom, she's, the mom's dressed like she's out of the 80s. There's corded phones. There's, you know, there's no cell phones in the movie. Everything's wired landlines. But the character of Yara has this clamshell thing that's like an ebook reader. Right. So, yeah. And that's another way that you're confused. You're like, wait, there's black and white photos on the wall of family. Yeah. She has this weird, un- unknown technological device to read, almost like a Kindle Fire. Right. It's a clamshell. They just created that. And yeah, it's there's tube TVs, but then there's cars that are mint condition from like the 60s. Yep. And there's mint model cars from like 2012. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> it really just sets you off like, when is this? Where is this? What time of year is it? Right. <laughs> and it just kind of throws you off. It's almost like The Shining when they're in an office and there's a window, but there shouldn't be a window there because it's technically in the middle of the hotel. And, you you know, it's not spelled out for you, but there's little details like sprinkled throughout that kind of make you go. Something's not right. Right, right. Yeah, through the whole film, my wife and I were like going, well, wait a minute now, is this the 80s? Well, there's 90s cars there, and then he's got that old station wagon, and, you know, they got landlines, but yet she's got that device. So, yeah, it was really interesting how anachronistic it was. I I do like things that are anachronistic, you know, like, um, like, for example, unrelated, but you've got Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She's this valley girl who can kill vampires, you know, and it's a total anachronism right there. And this, right. The, the setting in this was totally anachronistic. And I, I just love that because it could be, you know, it's, it's its own, it's its own time period. It's just sort of like this never, never land of, of an amalgamation of different things. Right. Exactly. And that's something I just find so interesting about it too. They really just set. I like the setting of everything and I don't know what it is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Now, our cast are very young, so they, they don't have a lot of credits to them, and I, I don't know if the audience will know who most of them are. Maybe you do, and I'll just go through them um, real quickly here. So we've got Maika Monroe, who plays Jamie J. Height. Um, she's, of course, the main protagonist of the film, she, who's just come back from like her first or second year of college, and she was in the, the sequel to Independence Day, Independence Day Resurgence, and she was also in The Fifth Wave 
which I have seen, but quite a while ago, so I don't really remember it. Um, do you know anything else about her? No. Uh, most of the cast, I don't, with the exception of Paul. I think he was the only familiar face, but her work I wasn't familiar with, which I think is also good Good casting. It's good to take the celebrity out of the movie, almost having these like everyday kids that really don't have much experience with that. <laughs> Not really well-known faces. Right. Um, even looking at her IMDb, I saw she was in Honey Boy. Okay. That was an interesting movie. I don't know if you ever saw Honey No, Boy, I haven't heard of that one. That was like a movie by about Shia LaBeouf, like his childhood. Oh. <laughs> it's kind of weird. It's like a dramatization of his life. It was surprisingly good. But yeah, no, otherwise I haven't seen her around too much. That's interesting. But I think she's a perfect cast for, a, for the main character of a horror film. I think it was a good choice. Oh, absolutely. And I thought the whole cast was good. They were all, they all put great performances on here. Um, and like you mentioned, the character of Paul, he was played by Keir Gilchrist. And um, he was in two movies called The Rocker and Dead Silence, among actually quite a few others for someone of his age. Daniel Zavato played Greg Hannigan. Jake Weary played Hugh slash Jeff Redmond. He was obviously the um, the boyfriend that gave her the virus of the of being followed. And he was in a movie called Zombievers about zombie beavers. And <laughs> I'm familiar with it. I haven't seen it. But... No. <laughs> I haven't seen that one yet either. That might be something we'll have to cover on the show. Then we've got <laughs> Olivia Lucardi or Lucardi as Yara Davis and Lily Seppi as her sister, as um, Jamie's sister, Kelly. Um, yeah, this movie just, there was, it was very original, I thought, first of all. It was very multi-layered, you know, had a lot of subtext going on. What I liked about the originality of it is we haven't really seen this kind, I mean, yeah, all right, you, you made the parallel to Michael Myers, but this is more than just a dude with a butcher knife that's killing people. This was, you know, it, it, it was almost like, um... Was it the ri- the ring right with the videotape? And if you watch it after seven days, you get a phone call. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So s- same deal with it. You know, I could see the comparisons there too. There's a set of rules. Um, you kind of have to learn the rules along with the main character, and figure out what it is they're actually running from. So yeah, very similar to that too. Yeah. Yeah. So it so it starts off with a very original premise, which was great, and then it took a lot of the tropes I thought the typical horror movie tropes and kind of turn them on the ear. For example, the whole trope of, of teenagers having sex and getting killed off one by one. And they sort of took that from its, you know, original setting of the teen slasher movies, particularly of the eighties and put it here, but made it different. And it was different enough that it worked. It was still, it was still the whole teenagers shouldn't have sex. Cause if they do, they'll, they'll die. But it was done very differently. I thought. Right. They almost take that one rule of horror movies, which like, scream shined the light on that like the virgin's good if you have sex you better start running and they almost made it the premise of the entire movie right exactly i read an interview with the director about why the creature took on the form of greg's mother in that scene where she basically she basically fucks him to death and um (laughs) yeah (laughs) and um he basically said well first of all it was you know one of the more fucked up things i could think of but also, within the in the film, they had purposely been avoiding the adult world, so I thought it would be interesting to only enter into that space through the trope of the monster. So right. that kind of made sense, actually. Yeah, it does. It's also a scene where you're getting towards, I'm not sure what time through that that happens, but it makes you kind of sit up <laughs> sit up straight and uh, yeah. <laughs> sharpen your senses even more. Like, wait, what's going on? <laughs> you know, but, like- also a good way to lead into that rule of, 
that's crazy. What do we just witness? And then it clicks into your head. Oh, it's back to her now. Right, right. <laughs> she didn't she didn't escape it. We we very we barely see Jamie's mother. If we do, she's in the background. She's not facing the camera. She's clearly some kind of a drunk. Um, we don't yep. really see any adults in this film. Uh, I think we mentioned earlier, and that it kind of works because uh, not as a parable, but it's basically about these kids trying to figure out life. And then when you have sex, that's sort of the first ritual that brings you into adulthood. But then with adulthood comes all the problems of life that now you're going to have to deal with that you didn't have to as kids. You know, and it was really interesting. It was almost on a Charlie Brown level where you don't see the adults. You know, it's just the kids. That's funny. That's exactly what my wife said. We were just talking about this. She goes, it's like Charlie Brown. Yeah. (laughs) I go, they're still present. They talk. You just can't understand them. But yeah, it's a kind of kids only world where you go it, it, it does cross your mind like where are the adults in all of this but it definitely is a good choice to kind of take them out of the whole picture and have the kids figure this out on their own yeah yeah and again that level of ambiguity you couldn't tell I, I mean i guess obviously they were teenagers and she was just into her college years but yet there's a scene where where paul and and the other two girls are sitting around on the porch playing old maid which is a little kid's game, you know, and you're wondering why are they playing Old Maid, but it's sort of, you know, they still want to hang on to that childhood that they had. Yeah, yeah, it's just another one of those ways that they just kind of throw you off, and you're like, I mean, you understand their age, but yeah, that's true. The game itself is pretty crazy, and it was like a very vintage card set that they had for uh, their game of Old Maid. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and when, when the tall guy comes in, to the room, and Jamie just flips out and, and runs away, she runs to the playground which in her mind is safety because when you're a little kid that you know that you're safe at the playground. Right. Yeah, that's true. So I thought that was interesting that they had a lot of, it was, it was almost like these kids are being pushed kicking and screaming into adulthood. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, visually, I thought the film was great too. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of slow pans, a lot of steady cam tracking shots, you know, pans of the neighborhood that could, be, I mean, it was filmed in Detroit, but it could be any neighborhood, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, it was filmed in Detroit, but does it take place in Oakland? I'm not sure. They mentioned Eight Mile, and I, I that rang a bell oh, okay. with me, but I don't know if that's in Oakland or in Detroit. Yeah, it's gonna. Well, yeah, it's gonna be Detroit then. But yeah, it is just a weird setting. I mean, even the the style you get right off the bat when they even show the title, I was like, oh, this movie's right up my alley. Just kind of that retro feel that they kind of trying to create out of this newer movie. Yeah, exactly. They they never consider going to the adults for help. They, they always seem to rely on themselves. You know, I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't know, it doesn't always work out. Their final plan um, right. was an awful idea to try and kill this monster. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm watching it going, first of all, they're not going to be able to electrocute someone in a pool. It's just not going to happen with those devices that they have <laughs> with the, the typewriter right. and the lamp and stuff. It's just not, you're not going to get enough voltage. That's not how it works. Yeah. But but in my mind, I come from a background of watching these movies, and I like movies where the characters will first do their research, try and figure out what the creature is, try and figure out the creature's weakness, and then go after it. And I know the director purposely didn't do that. He has actually on, on record as saying he could have gone in that direction. He didn't want to. And that to me was, I thought, well, I do like a degree of ambiguity in movies. I don't mind it. I just thought, like, especially the ending... It felt like, uh, uh, it almost felt like the director who, who co-wrote it, or who actually wrote it, not co-wrote it, 
it just felt like a little bit lazy to throw that on the shoulders of the audience. Well, well, you figure it out. You figure out what this was and what's going on here. And I was a little disappointed on that level of the film. I kind of felt like he should have, didn't have to explain everything. I'm not asking for everything to be handed to me as an audience member, but I don't want to have to do the writer's work for him too. Does that make any sense? Yeah. And uh, I've considered that too. And I've read some reviews where people kind of have the same issue with that. I personally do like it. I mean, I don't like, you know, it's, there's, there's no right answer. It's, that is kind of frustrating to a degree, but um, I think that also lended to that unease where even when the movie is over, you're uncomfortable. Is that somebody following them? You know, it's blurry. It's, it's gotta be coming after him. There's no way the monster's dead. Like we were discussing earlier, death is inevitable. So I think that's kind of still to that point. Like I made the assumption they didn't kill this entity. Um, it's now still following Paul who was eager to sleep with Jay. Right. Even though that's how dumb in love this teenager was, is that even knowing that it could mean certain death or certainly running from death, that he was still willing to sleep with her. Right, Um, right. (laughs) Which even they show him, as you described in the uh, description earlier, he drives past the uh, prostitutes, considers that. So I think, yeah, it's kind of left open to, for your mind to wander, what's the right move next? Because I... I think the entity still certainly exists. I don't think it's something that can be killed, only passed on. So now he's left with that. Um, so there's a lot of emotions and a whole thought process that kind of has to follow up that they couldn't sum up in a final scene and really cleanly bring the movie to an end. So That's I kind of liked how I kind of liked how they created that. You're unsure, so it kind of just really drives home that uneasy feeling that you had the entire movie. And to your point, there's this level of paranoia that I think is on the audience, not uh, not necessarily in the film where, like when I was watching it, I, I was wondering who in the background was the follower. You know, it could be could have been anyone. I mean, that person at the end, we don't really know if that's the follower or not, but you suspect and now you're paranoid because it could be anybody, anything. Right. It kind of calls back to those scenes where, you know, they say, do you see that person? When they're first on that date and they're in the movie theater and he looks over his shoulder and says, do you see her? And she says, who? Then he decides to run. Yeah. Um, yeah. It calls back to those scenes where it's like, do you see that person? Is that real? And it kind of just can drive the whoever it's after can drive him mad because they don't know what to believe. And it's the same for us. We're constantly looking in the background and looking around. So the whole premise keeps the viewer kind of on the edge of their seat looking at every scene. And even when there's nothing there, I'm doing all this work trying to <laughs> trying to look at, down every hallway and behind the trees. And because there is when they're on the beach, you see the entity walking towards them for like a quick glimpse for a second. You're like, oh, wait, I think I just saw somebody, you know, in the tall grass back yeah. there. And then, and then eventually, yeah, it's just slowly is walking right towards them. And the friends are unable to see it. So, of course, it's coming from behind. Right. And like when they went to Greg's house and the first shot before you even see his house is across the street and there's some lady kind of milling about in her backyard, I guess. But for a split second, you're like, wait a minute, is that it? What is that? You know? Right. (laughs) And that's one cool thing about this. um, This film is that for first of all, like you said, you had to work for it. It it definitely makes you work for it. You're definitely engaged in the film because you're trying to see, like you said, what's in the background? Who is that person? Is there a person there? And I think that actually is really good because, you know, some movies you could pretty much, you know, read the newspaper or play a video game while you're watching it. But this, you have to stay engaged because you don't know 
what's going to happen next. Exactly. And it kind of reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you've seen the newer, those series, they have The Haunting of Bly Manor just came out. No, I didn't. They have, it was a sequel to another movie that it's like The Haunting on of Hill House. Okay. Um, but every scene there was, there's ghosts hidden throughout every scene. It's whether they're behind a door, under stairs, hiding under a piano. So after the first episode that I watched and I caught onto that, I was like Googling afterwards, like which ones did I miss? And they would have, you know, screenshots. Here's where you miss all these and you're rewatching. You're like, oh, there's, you know, they're hiding in plain sight. Every scene there's what you're afraid of is in every single scene, but you have to like be on edge and pay attention and be sharp. And it just keeps you focused and just, it just really keeps your attention throughout the entire viewing. That's awesome. The Haunting of Blythe, Blythe Manor. I'm going to have to check that out. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast. It's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic monsters, modern talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Monster Kid Radio! and kittens do you remember the 50s jukeboxes hot rods malt shops and sock hops no not really oh well do you remember that tv show happy days you know fonzie and richie and all like that a sit on it etc kind of then join us for these days are ours a happy days podcast where we watch every episode and give you the lowdown on what it all means Find us at thesedaysareours.libsyn.com and follow us on Twitter at Fonzie Podcast. Be there or be square. You're sure you don't remember Sock Hops? Sorry, no. Okay, then. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit... We have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. 
a look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil, and our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. You know, and, and what we're talking about here, too, plays into one of the themes of this film, which is voyeurism. I mean, right off the bat, those creepy little neighborhood kids that are always peeping in at, at uh, Jamie, you know? Yep. <laughs> that was really odd. But then, you know, a lot of the camera shots, uh, as you mentioned, we're looking through grass, we're looking through trees. The shots where we're looking through windows or, or doorways, sometimes when we first meet characters, you know? And I, right. I, I like that aspect of it, uh, although it made it, it even added to the to the creepiness. I th- that's why I said, you know, this movie's multi-layered because there's so many things about it that make it creepy, not just the jump scares. Right. There's one scene I, I loved and hated is when they pull away from the house and you realize the entity's on top of the house. He was close to them. Oh, yeah. Right on the roof. And you're like, oh, what a creepy scene. Yeah. And I go, wait a minute. Wait, why did this thing get on? The, how did it get on the roof? Right. Why wasn't it just standing there? If it's always slowly walking towards you. Why didn't it go through, go through the door or the window? Why did it decide, I'm just going to mess with him here. I'm going to stand on the roof. Right, and it's in the form really of a naked old man. It's like, out. what? What the heck? <laughs> yeah, I hate when that happens. Now, in the commentary, um, one of the commentators said that that was her grandfather, which I guess maybe if you go back and look at the pictures on the wall, I mean, you couldn't really see his face that well, but maybe, you know, that's where they get that from. I, I don't know how they got came to that idea but right i think they tried to play around with that with the entity here and there i had read that annie the girl in the beginning was played an entity at one point um, oh, okay now you've only watched it twice but did you pick up on jay's father um being a part of this movie you know it's funny that you said that because when we were watching it last night about halfway through i guess when they went back to the to the house to her house or for a scene i said to i said to charlene i'm like Wait, was, wasn't her father there or something? And she couldn't remember and I couldn't remember. So why don't you explain that for the audience? Um, well, an interesting scene, and it took me probably after three views, um, when they're in the pool trying to kill the entity, she's in the pool and she, she, for one of the, I mean, she was always freaked out by this, but for the first time, she really looks like she's seen a ghost. And her, to the point where her sister asks, what is it? What do you see? And she says to her own sister, I don't want to tell you. And I go, well, that's a weird, weird response to that. Why? Oh, yeah. You could just... Instead of just saying it's right there, it's it's you know on the edge of the pool. She says, "I don't want to tell you." Um, and then they show it, and it's a man probably in his about early forties with a beard, and it turns out that's her father. So she sees her own father walking towards him in the pool in one of the final showdowns, and then there are photos of that man in the house. Oh wow, uh, that can be seen. So I guess it's assumed that he he's obviously you have to assume he's dead, and they don't really lead on to you know if he killed himself or if he was killed or they no point doing that but they just add that little bit to even add to the her own fear um and really kind of mess with her head even more so than it already had to 
So yeah, that was an interesting aspect I, that I didn't pick up on right away. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, I did not notice that that was his, her father. But now that makes sense though, and it just it, in, in your mind it makes this whole backstory now of what happened to the father, why did he die, is that why the mother became an alcoholic? You know, there's so many things that you could kind of put together in your own head that they don't tell you in the film. Right. It, yeah, it starts to paint a slightly different picture. It makes it even a little more eerie. It just kind of adds to the depth of the, uh, you know, Jay's story overall, too. Right, right. And, you know, one of the interesting things, too, getting back to talking a little bit about the voyeurism in, in, in a less overt way, because Jay has come back from college, everyone's kind of looking at her, and they're looking at her differently because now she's a woman, and she's moving, you know, further into adulthood and everyone all the kids are kind of seeing her with different eyes especially paul who kind of obviously already had a crush on her now really thinks he has a chance with her i thought that was kind of kind of interesting how they were portraying that yeah absolutely like i said this poor paul was eager to get laid (laughs) and it's funny because that scene the scene where he basically is willing to sacrifice himself you know, he's got this noble intention. He's like, I'll have sex with you and I'll take the demon on or whatever it is. But you're watching it going, yeah, but he just wants to, he just wants to get late. <laughs> right. So it's a double-edged sword. He wants to be the hero of the White Knight, but he also has the hots for her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's a good solution for him to her problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> and for his issue too, you know, because he wants to do the deed with her. So, <laughs> I mean, he even... You know, when, um, what's his name, Greg, has sex with her in the hospital, and Paul kind of picks up on this, that this happened, he, he comes across as jealous, even though the what's going to happen because of this is there's an entity is going to follow you and try and kill you. <laughs> He's like, right. oh, that was supposed to be me. Right, right. <laughs> and what was cool was, and they mentioned this in the commentary, was that Paul's character could have been the type of character that was like, that flipped out because of that. He could have got all pissed off and, you know, that Greg had sex with her and it should have been him and all that. But they didn't go in that direction, which I thought was very brave of the of the filmmakers to not go in the direction that you expected him to go in. Right. So, um, you know, and the, just the cinematography of this film, too. I can't get I can't talk enough about it. Like there's one shot where the blue station wagon turns a corner. It's going down this tree lined path and the trees are all. Like you said, like you said, we don't know what time of year it is, but in this scene, it's fall, and the trees are all orange, and there's leaves all over the ground, and it's just beautifully shot. It, it looked like a painting. Oh yeah, yeah. No, they have great, great scenery throughout the whole movie. You know, it's kind of funny too. The character of Hugh at the beginning, he seems really nice, and then he kind of becomes a villain because of what he does to her. But then when they go to talk to him, they instead of you know being like. You know, oh, why'd you do this to my my friend here? And why'd you have to be a jerk? They just sit and listen to what he has to say, which I thought was very interesting character reactions. Right. Yeah, they have this maturity, almost uh, sympathy, because this great group of friends, you know, they've been, they surprisingly believe their friend Jay about this (laughs) whole thing actually being true and happening. So I think they kind of bring some level of sympathy because he was faced with the same difficult decision that she has and that this group of friends as a, group are trying to kind of deal with and he didn't have that group of friends and he was kind of on his own so right i, I guess to a point they're like ah we kind of get it it's you you gotta pass it on you can't run forever right and you had a 
go it alone and have your house all boarded up all by himself, except for his uh, porn magazines. Right. <laughs> you know, but he was smart about it. He, I mean, I like how his house was kind of home alone. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, ready, ready to try it and at least trigger it to give him enough time to run away. And yeah. Cause he had what? He had like tin cans and bottles tied on strings by the window, sort of as an alarm system. Yeah. Yeah. So he knew, I mean, and he was aware. I mean, even when he gives her the initial rules, he want her to survive at least long enough to pass it on to somebody else. Um, so couldn't just leave her tied up to the chair in the beginning and have her die because it would come back to him. Right. So his description and always give yourself a way out, never go into a room with only one exit. You can tell he's been doing this for some time. Yeah, which is interesting because it makes you wonder where did the chain start and who, like, how did, who initially learned the rules? Right. So, yeah, how was it described to him? Because... Well, to that same point, um, they, another thing they don't completely spell out is the girl, Annie, in the beginning of the movie. She's mutilated her legs, bent backwards in this gruesome scene. And I think the movie starts, she's calling her parents, you know, telling them she's just given up. Yeah. But I assume she had to have been a girlfriend or had some connection with uh, Jeff or Grant, whatever his, Hugh. his real name's Jeff. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah Hugh, yeah. I mean, um, his real name ends up being Jeff. But yeah, Hugh, I would assume that she... You know, I'd like to think that she was maybe a girlfriend of his and either he passed it on to her and then it just bounced right back to him and she didn't make it. But I thought that was interesting to put that in the beginning. I was like, I guess that kind of shows you what this entity is capable of. It'll right. just snap your leg right back. It doesn't just touch you and you pass out and die. It's right, going right. to really mangle, mangle you, which kind of sets you right to the right off the bat. You know what this what this thing is capable of. Right. Exactly. You know, and I didn't even think of that because now you wonder, is what you said correct? It was, did Jeff pass it to her and then it bounced back to him? Or is that another one of these things out there? Right. Yes, that's also possible. It could have nothing to do with him at all. That's really creepy. You know, oh, wow. That just leads you to the whole... I mean, all right, you know, I'm going to relax on my little, um, you know, argument about the ambiguity because now it gets you thinking about you know, the possibilities of are there other things out there and, you know, it, there's this whole world of these things may, that, you know, that have been going on through history. I mean, this could have been going on since the dawn of mankind. Right, right. It's, yeah, it's so weird. It makes you, it really makes you think, like, why isn't this more well-known? Why this is only quietly ruining teenagers' lives. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, and that it's never-ending. It only worked its way backwards, too. So they had to somehow figure out those rules, too, over the course of, like I said, if it's always happened. And it's just, it's been kept quiet, and it's scary, and you can't escape it. And unless you go through a long enough chain, but you never know, it could still work its way all the way back to you, years later, even, if it eventually catches up to everybody. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. And, you know, there, there you go. There, therein lies another good movie they could make about it working its way back. But, um, you know, but that, that whole thing, that whole what we just discussed about the creature and, and whether or not it's just one or more than one, you know, that adds to the ambiguity, the ambiguity of the location or I'm sorry, the time period that they're in. You know, it, it overall, it gives it this dreamlike feel, which, you know, a lot of comparisons to Nightmare on Elm Street have been made about this movie. And I agree with that because it's very dreamlike with the, the slow camera movements, the, the way the camera pans it just the whole thing feels like an unreal dream world yet real at the same time exactly now that explains it perfect yeah it's it it almost doesn't seem like a real 
place and the way that they paint that picture too it really just adds to the creepiness for sure right right and as modern films do have they have jump scares but these were effective jump scares because they weren't the typical beat for beat um you know lead up to a jump scare it was stuff that you just weren't prepared for and in fact when i watched it again with the director's commentary i jumped at one or two things (laughs) right oh yeah there's always something to find for sure now, briefly, just getting back to our comparison to, to Carpenter, the one scene to me, well, there's two scenes, actually, that, that um, stick out to me. One is the characters walking down the sidewalk, and the the entity, the follower, or whatever you want to call it, is behind them. That was very reminiscent of, you know, Laurie Strode and her friends walking down the sidewalk in Halloween, as well as the scene where she's in the classroom, and the teacher's talking about, uh, the poem, she was doing T.S. Eliot's poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and uh, Jamie looks out the window and she sees the old lady walking towards her, which is very similar to Laurie Strode in Halloween looking out and seeing the shape standing there. Oh, yeah. There's a ton of callbacks to that movie. You can tell the director was really just kind of motivated and probably respected those style of horror films so much, and it shows. Yeah, yeah. And the poem that the teacher's reading... Um, I thought this was interesting. I found this online. There was a, there's a whole page that does an analysis of the poems in the film. Because I remember watching it thinking, oh, geez, I should look that up afterwards because I know that there's some meaning here and I just wasn't getting it. So I'm still trying to absorb the movie the first time through. But um, the first poem there in the classroom, it's written from the point of view of an adult man who reflects on his life, describing, among other things, an awareness of his advanced age. And, of course, that scene, she sees an old lady coming towards her. So I, I it's... It's theorized on this site that I found that that scene is to show the moment that Jay realizes that the curse is real and then it's following her and she's realizing her own mortality, that she could basically croak from this monster. Right. That poem and also the book that Yara reads throughout, I think also kind of right. more similarly to Light Itself too. That was The Idiot by uh, Dostoevsky, which was written in yes. 1869. And... um you know, she she reads out one of the passages aloud, and it basically, in the novel, the protagonist, who's Prince Mushkin, he's debating whether or not death by guillotine is a painless death. So, you know, the, it's it's almost like, you know, like, let's say, God forbid, someone has a, a, a terminal illness, and they're faced with the fact that they're going to die. They're wondering, is it going to be painful or not? Uh, you know, what's going to happen afterwards? And that's the same thing with this entity. Because they, like the girl at the beginning, it looked pretty painful. <laughs> they didn't see it, but we know it as the audience, you know? Oh, yeah. That's why I love that opening scene, too. It just lets you know that, yeah, it's painful, not just a shot in the head. Right, right. <laughs> as they tried a couple times to kill the entity, just shoot it. I know. And she was such a like, bad what shot. What a bad but... idea. Right. <laughs> it worked, though. Well, it seemingly worked. Now, do you, So you don't think, so when they shot it in the head in the pool... And all the blood went everywhere. You think it just, what, was it just injured and it needed time to reform and then it's going to come back? Uh, yeah, I think so. And that's one of those rules you don't know that I almost wish they were able to kind of clarify, too. Right. I mean, if we base it on the idea that death is inevitable, then you can't kill death. I think it's kind of a you know futile effort to just pop a bullet in his head but i mean they also smash a chair on him too <laughs> that was cool slows him down that whole scene oh yeah was that cool. that one scene where it's also her hair just kind of floats up and right. i'm glad that they show they show that scene where you can't see the entity and it's just her hair floating up so 
that kind of gives that proof to her friends too that they didn't need but it certainly helps <laughs> to really make them on her side that this thing exists oh yeah because then it was pounding on the door it smashed the bottom of the door but what i don't understand so okay it smashed the bottom a hole in the bottom of the door why didn't it then crawl through and kill her right it has strange motivations it reacts very bizarre in certain scenes and you go why exactly that just like why was it on the roof why didn't it go straight because it almost seems like my initial concept was it goes from point a to point b very slowly but it will work its way towards you it's yeah. almost like you know go go to martha's vineyard i don't think the thing will uh get there for some time but <laughs> right go to Tahiti. i was like lock it lock it in a cage Go into a cage and then run out and <laughs> lock it. I don't know. It's like, there's certain ways where you go, well, how does, how does this thing work? How can they maybe better to trap it than to try and kill it? But they don't really try to trap it. And I don't think the director had an answer for that plot hole. Right. So he's like, you know what? Let's not do that. Let's just come up with this dumb scheme to electrocute it. Right. <laughs> you know, it just occurred to me, too, one possible solution would be have sex with a, a sex doll. <laughs> they can't kill See, the sex doll. It might, I think a pulse might have something to do with the rules. I don't oh, that's know. true. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Just going around, just going around having sex with different things, trying to trick this thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh! All right, we're not going to go there. But there are some farm animals that would be terrified. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the final shot is Jay and Paul walking down the sidewalk. Now they're holding hands, so their relationship has obviously evolved, you know, due to the tense situation and everything that's happened. But so do you think the person following them is the follower or was that just us being paranoid as audience members? I, I'd i like to think that it, it is. Um, you know, it may not be killing him five minutes after the credits roll, um, but I think... It kind of unroll unravels this whole other mindset. Now you go, well, now it's his problem. Um, and I think it is after him and whether if it's that, that exact person that we see is the entity or not. Um, I think it just kind of is a nod to yes, he's now it's his problem and it just continues. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That's very interesting. I, I feel personally, I, I almost don't want to believe that it's the entity only because it just raises my anxiety level in this movie. And I'm like, no, it can't be. But you're you're most likely you're right. So, uh, Jack, give us your final thoughts on the movie It Follows. Uh, if people haven't seen it, they have to. Um, if they've only watched it once and took it at face value, I think that they really miss out. One thing I am going to say before this is over is that this isn't an A24 movie. I lied to you. Oh. I was 50-50 on that, and then I looked it up afterwards, and I go, you know what? I was wrong. But there were so many hereditary was, and the other movies I named were, but I was like, they came up with so many great horror films. Like, I'm pretty sure they did It Follows, but no, they were, it was like Northern Lights, was oh, okay. the uh, production company, and they only have, they have a very small list of movies under their belt, um, so good for them for at least putting this movie out. But yeah, it's a great movie, great for interpretation. I think it creates a lot of discussion. Um I think it was great for horror in general, um, the callbacks that they had and just kind of setting up for that overall atmosphere that not many movies put in the effort to create. Um, I think so much thought was put into this movie that it just kind of deserves the time to sit down and watch it a couple times. I agree. I agree. I love the cinematography. I thought the acting was great. I thought it was a very original story. It took a lot of horror tropes and did different things with them which was great. It kept you engaged 
from beginning to end. Like we said before, you know, you're, you're watching it, you're looking at every detail in the background, every person in the background. It, it, it's definitely worth seeing. It's definitely, um, uh, as you said too, you said it perfectly where it's just this creepy and scary, but it's a throwback to the classic horror films that we love, but for a modern audience. So I, I agree with that. I, I definitely recommend people should check out It Follows from 2014. So, Jack, thank you once again for joining me, and uh, I look forward to talking with you in the future about another good film. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Then Is Now podcast. I highly recommend that you check out the film It Follows. It was such a great horror movie and i want you the audience please let us know what you thought about it you can send your feedback to us at then is now 42 at gmail.com you can also join in the conversation at our facebook then is now podcast group then is now podcast is now a proud member of the dorkening podcast network so be sure to check out the other great shows there at the you can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti western movies. And of course, Then Is Now is on YouTube now, so visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcasts with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcasts from and please leave us a great review if you enjoyed the show so that more listeners can find us. Then Is Now is on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. That's all the time we have today for this then is now podcast join us again next episode class dismissed for more shows like the one you just heard check out the dorkening podcast network at the dorkening.com Thank you.